All right, you are here on week number two of a series that uh, we're doing called Jonah. We're actually calling it a man on the run, a man on the run. And we're journeying through the book of Jonah. And so what I want to do today is I want to give you a little bit of an overview of the entire book of Jonah. And then I'll give you a quick recap of chapter number one. Sometimes I can be a little guilty of re-preaching last week's message. I don't want to do that today, but I do want to give you an overview and a quick recap of last week. I encourage you to take uh, something out to write with, take some notes. If you're going to use your smartphone, maybe you want to put it on do not disturb so that your ADD doesn't kick in. Come on now. But I encourage you to write down some thoughts today. Let me give you the overview real quick. The book of Jonah is a short book. It's only four chapters long. Uh, You could read the entire book in about 15 to 20 minutes. And when I read the book of Jonah, I really see it divided right down the middle. So the theme is split right down the middle. If you look at the first two chapters, which we looked at chapter number one last week, we're going to look at chapter number two today, you're going to see all about the disobedience of Jonah. You'll read all about his rebellion and his stubbornness. You'll even pick up on a little bit of hint of racism that Jonah struggles with, and I'll tell you how that comes about here in just a moment. As you come to the concluding chapters, chapters 3 and 4, you begin to see how God gets the attention of Jonah. Jonah stops being so rebellious. He submits to the ways of God. And I'm going to say this early in the beginning of the message here because I think somebody needs to hear it. But you can keep running from God, but at some point, God's going to get you to uh, bow down. The Bible says that one day every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess. So you can run for a little while, but you can't run forever. And in the second half of this book, we see that God, through a series of events, gets the attention of Jonah, and Jonah goes from disobedience to obedience. Now, again, just a quick summary of the whole book. So the book of Jonah is about a stubborn man. Some would say a stubborn preacher. I don't know anything about that. Come on. A stubborn man, a rebellious nation, but it's also all about a gracious God. And I feel like this is a great place just to remind somebody that regardless of how stubborn and rebellion you and I can be, regardless of how rebellious of a nation we continue to become, we serve a gracious God that is full of mercy and full of kindness. Come on, if we're going to clap, let's do it well right here. Come on, I love that. This is what the whole book is about. This stubborn, rebellious man, a rebellious nation, but a God whose grace never runs out. So over the next couple of Sundays, we're going to look at, or weekends, we're going to look at each chapter within this, within this powerful book. And I want to go back real quick to chapter number one, because the historical context really sets up the entire understanding and the gravity of the whole story. So Jonah is a prophet in Israel. His ministry base camp, if you will, is in Israel. He's alive during the reign of King Jeroboam II. Uh, He is instructed, Jonah is instructed by God to go to Nineveh and preach against their sin. Okay, so that's chapter number one. Now, let's talk a little bit about Nineveh because it's important you know about the location in which God called Jonah to go and to preach against their sin. So Nineveh is the capital uh, city of Assyria. And the Assyrians are evil people. All of the empire of Assyria is wicked, but Nineveh is the sin city, if you will. 
So the Assyrians are mean. Look at this. I wrote down a few thoughts here. Uh, the Assyrians, they, they tortured their men. They raped their women. They molested their children. They believed in sorcery and witchcraft. Incest was a big part of their culture. The prophet Nahum in Nahum chapter 3 described the city of Nineveh as uh, dead people everywhere, piles of dead bodies in the middle of the street, so much that you would trip over them. And now, I, although you see a little bit more of a description of the city of Nineveh, Jonah's rebellion or stubbornness had nothing to do with fear. Jonah wasn't afraid of the Assyrians. Jonah wasn't afraid of the city of Nineveh. Jonah didn't want to go because he didn't think that God should forgive them of the type of sins they were committing. He had this kind of racist approach saying that you shouldn't forgive or love that group of people, those types of people. So watch this. Write this down. God says, go. Jonah says, no. And we do that too. Our story may not be just like Jonah's, but repeatedly God will say, everybody on the count of three, say go. One, two, three. And we always can continue to say what? No. And this is what happens. God says go. Jonah says no. Now, here's the thing. The same is true for Jonah. It's the same is true for my life and your life. God has an assignment for you. God has a purpose for you. There, there is a reason that you woke up today. Can you give me an amen right there? Now, a lot of times you and I can get caught up in the same old mundane routine of everyday living, but there is a reason that you're alive. There is an assignment for your life, and the assignment that's on your life is too big for you to continue to run from. So, so Jonah says no. He begins to run from the Lord. The Bible says that he goes down to the port at Joppa, he buys a one-way ticket to a city called Tarshish. Watch this. At this point of history, uh, Tarshish is the end of the known world. So Jonah is saying, not only am I going to be stubborn and rebellious, but I'm going to buy a one-way ticket to a city on the opposite end of the world. Tarshish is 2,500 miles in the opposite direction of Nineveh. Do you see that? One commentary says that by sailing, it would have taken Jonah one year to get to Tarshish. Jonah was saying, no, I'm, I refuse to go to the city of Nineveh. And while he's on the run, and this is what God has done in my life, and maybe you can testify to this truth as well, God says, I'm going to get your attention. You can run for a little while, but you can't run forever. And God sends a storm, a ferocious storm on the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, so much so that the ship that Jonah was on uh, threatened to break up. The captain and the sailors, all of the crew that were on the boat, they cast lots, meaning this was very common in that culture, to flip a coin or roll dice to see who brought this trouble upon them. And guess who the guilty party was? Jonah. And so they decide to throw Jonah overboard. And that's what they did. They threw Jonah overboard in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea while this storm was wild. And I said this last Sunday. I didn't put it on the screen, but I wanted you to write it down today as well. God would rather you live in a storm than live in your sin. Let me, I've said it this way in the past. I think it's worth repetition. 
God cares more about your holiness than he does your happiness. God's got a plan for your life. God's got a destiny for your life. And God would rather you live in the middle of a storm, hoping that your eyes are open to the calling of God that's on your life. And you turn from your life of disobedience and you turn to God in a life of obedience. So God would rather you live in a storm than you live in sin. Isn't that good? Now, here's what a lot of people think. Is this story true? Because what happens? The Bible says at the end of Jonah chapter 1, the captain and the sailors, they throw Jonah overboard in the middle of a storm. As soon as Jonah's body hits the sea, two things happen. Number one, the storm ceases. And number two, a big old fish, a huge whale, some people think, opened its mouth and swallowed Jonah. And we think, is this story possible? And again, I gave you this verse last Sunday, but it's important for you to know that the story of Jonah, the book of Jonah, is far more than just some kid's novel or children's book material or vacation Bible school curriculum or Sunday school lesson. No, no, no. There's something to the book of Jonah that all of us can learn from. And it was Jesus whose words were recorded in the book of Matthew. And Jesus says, just like Jonah, was three days and three nights in the belly of that big old fish, bringing validity to the story. Are you with me? Jesus says, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What a story. Come on. So today, we get to journey to chapter 2 of Jonah. So if you've got your Bible, flip there real quick. As you're flipping there, let me give you a, a little bit of understanding of what's going to happen in Jonah chapter 2. Here we see Jonah's beautiful Hebrew prayer to the Lord. Some call Jonah chapter 2 the, the psalm of Jonah. Now, what's important about Jonah 2 that you and I need to know is that this is just a snapshot of his prayer. I'm going to read to you the entire chapter. It's only 10 verses long. Here's how I know it's a snapshot. You can't spend three days and three nights in the belly of a fish and only pray 10 verses in length. He didn't have a flashlight, a pen, and a journal uh, while he was in the belly of a well. So after his experience, he just gives us a snapshot of the prayer that he prayed out of Jonah chapter number two. And I want you to see this beginning in verse number one. As a matter of fact, let's just read verse number one together. I'll read the other remaining verses and uh, you can follow along, but I want to read this one together. Everybody online, everybody at Germantown, everybody here, you ready? One, two, three, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. Let's do it again. You ready? One, two, three. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. And here's what he said. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. I'm going to come back to that. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. Watch what he says in verse number three. Again, a snapshot of his prayer. He says, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas. The currents swirled about me. All of your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters, verse number five, threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed, come on now. Seaweed, some of y'all like, I love sushi. Different story. Seaweed was wrapped all around my head. 
The roots of the mountains I sank down, to the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever, but you, Lord, I love this, but you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. I feel this today. I hope you feel this too. Man, I just want to pause and just say to God, thank you for bringing my life up out of the pit. Anybody with me on that? And the distress and the deepest, darkest, most painful night. It's the Lord that brings us up out of the pit. It was the psalmist David that said, with your righteous right hand, you reach down from heaven and you pull me out of the miry clay. That's the kind of God that you serve. Listen to me. He says, when my life was slipping away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you. From Imagine, out of the belly of a fish, at the deepest part of the earth, his prayer rises to the holy temple of God. A few more verses. Those who cling to worthless idols turn from God's love for them. And watch what he says in verse number nine. He says, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. And I will say, come on, everybody together on three. Let's read this last sentence highlighted in yellow. Ready? One, two, three. Salvation comes from the Lord. Come on, say it again. One, two, three. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord, watch what happens. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jonah had never been more thankful for acid reflux than in that moment. Come on now. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that in the next 20 minutes, the words that you've put in my heart in preparation of today, God, would be used in a way to bring encouragement, conviction, and challenge to those that are listening, whether in this room, in Germantown, or online. God, I don't want to be just a motivational speaker. God, I want you to use me today in a way that would bring you glory and you honor, but that when we leave here, JC included, that our lives are different, that something happens through this conversation that would open our eyes and our ears to recognize that we've got to stop running from you and we have to start running to you. So let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And everybody said, amen. Come on and give Jesus your best praise. Come on, let's do it. All right. I'm on, this, uh, I'm on this kind of kick with the book of Jonah where, and you know, I'll let the Lord lead us over the next couple of uh, conversations, but I'm just going to pull some truth from every chapter. So last weekend, I gave you four truths from Jonah chapter one. Today, I'll give you three truths from Jonah chapter two. And at this progression, by the time we get to the end of the book, there's only one truth that I'll be able to share with you. But I want you to see three things from Jonah chapter two that the Lord put in my heart, and I think all of these ring true for every person that's listening today. The first truth that I see is this, is that God hears us even when we are guilty. Come on, can you give me a better amen? A bunch of righteous people out there. Well, maybe, I don't know. The Bible says in Romans 3 that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, I, I want to say something to you that if you think the only prayers that God ever hears are prayers when you're good, that, that's, a bad, that's a bad faith. That's bad theology. 
What we learn in Jonah chapter 2 is that if God would hear the prayer of a stubborn, racist, rebellious preacher, God will hear the prayer of anybody. And let me show you what happens here. I believe it's verse number 2. I told you I'd come back to it. I want you to see a couple things. Jonah said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. The Hebrew word for distress there is the word sarah. And I want you, I want you to, to look at what the actual meaning of the Hebrew word sarah means. It's our English word distress. Sarah is, the literal meaning is childbirth pain. Come on, mamas. Now, I want to say something. Um, I'm not a woman. I think it's important. It's 2020. Just want to make sure everybody's on the same page. I'm not a woman. Never had a baby. I've had 17 kidney stones, though. Come on now. Listen to that. I know a little bit about pain. Yeah, in Jesus' name, right? But, but the type of pain that a mama feels, not just in delivery, but the nine months of pain that a mother would feel in order to birth that child. Jonah says, this is the type of pain that I feel in my rebellion. A type of pain that is unexplainable unless you've been there and you've done that. And he says, even in the most painful, darkest, most unbelievable moment of my life, I called on you in my Sarah, in my distress, in my agony, in my sin, in my pain, and what? And you answered me. Let, let me give you one more thought here. He says, from the depth or in the deep of the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listen to me. That, that Hebrew word there for realm of the dead is the Hebrew word sheol, and it means two thoughts, grave or hell. And Jonah is saying, I'm in the depth of hell, and what? I called for help, and you listen to my cry. I don't, I don't know if we ever, let me not talk about you, let me talk about me. I don't know if I ever fully appreciate that there is a God in heaven that hears me when I cry out to him, not just when I'm good, because am I ever good? But even when I'm guilty, because I'm guilty a lot, and I don't know who needs to hear this, but you need to know this. There is never a bad time or a wrong time to pray. Can you give me an amen right there? Now, let me tell you this, because it's important. Religion and guilt, yeah, religion and guilt will tell you that there is a bad time or a wrong time to pray. Religion, if you're not careful, and guilt will say, God will not hear you when you pray that prayer while you're sitting in the back seat of a cop car. Religion and guilt will tell you that God doesn't hear your prayer when you're sitting inside of a courtroom or a hospital waiting room. I can't tell you how many times in my life I've been in some precarious situations and the enemy has told me, God will not hear you in this moment. Listen to me. Everybody lean in for a second. Everybody online, listen to me. That is a lie. It is a lie. The Bible says that you just cry out and you call on Jesus. Somebody say Jesus. And the Bible says that when you say the name Jesus, that all of hell begins to tremble because the enemy is reminded that he is. Can I remind you that there is power in the name of Jesus? And if that's all the prayer, if that's the only word that you can get out of your mouth in the season of guilt that you might find yourself in, there is enough power in the name of Jesus. And when you cry out Jesus, the Bible 
Bible says, 2 Chronicles 7, 14 and 15, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves, seek my face and pray, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven. I will heal and bless the land. Verse 15, then my eyes will be open and my ears always attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Listen to me, regardless of when you pray and regardless of where you pray, God always listens. He always listens. Jesus, man, the most powerful prayer that could ever be prayed is in a moment of desperation, a moment of Sarah, a moment of Sheol, a moment of distress in the belly of a fish to cry out to God and to say, look, I cannot save me. I cannot rescue me. The enemy wants you to think, though, because some of you, you're sitting here with the weight of guilt on your shoulders, and it's overwhelming. And the enemy wants you to think that God does not hear you when you pray. God doesn't just listen to the prayers of good people. God listens to the prayer of guilty people. And I thank you, Jesus, that you hear me even when I'm an idiot. Now, let me give you a little challenging thought, though. Stop making prayer your last resort. And let's start making prayer a first priority or option. I can't tell you how many conversations I find myself in where the conversation goes like this. They describe the situation that they're in, and they say, now, we've done everything we can do, so I guess the only thing left is to pray. My father-in-law and many of you that have sat under his ministry for some time, which, by the way, show of hands, how many of you were here when Pastor Allen was the lead pastor here? Wave at me. So you, you've heard this line before. He says, sometimes the spirit of slap comes over him. And I find it a, a funny one-liner, but it's so true because you and I, sometimes we just need to be slapped back into reality to say, prayer, prayer is not our last resort. Well, I've done everything else. I guess I ought to pray. There is power in prayer. If Jonah would have prayed first, he never would have ended up on that boat in the middle of a storm, swimming in the Mediterranean Sea, and then swallowed by a big old fish. And the same would be true for you. You find yourself in the rebellion that you're in and the guilt that you're in because you didn't decide to pray. And I've been there as well. Listen to me. It's not on the screen, but write this down. What if you prayed like it all depended on God and you worked as if it all depended on you. So faith without works is dead. So you can't just, okay, I'm going to give it to you, Lord, and now let me know how it turns out. Now, there's a part that we play in all of this, but what if prayer was not the, the last resort, but it was the first option that at the moment of decision, at the moment of choice, you said, God, whatever, your, your will for my life. Your way for my life. Man, you know what they say, uh, hindsight is always 2020. Two of you knew that. Wow, smart group today, good. <laughs> Hindsight's always 2020. Come on, those of you with a little experience underneath your, underneath your, your, your life and, and your experiences, you know that if you could go back in time, you would do some things differently than the first time you did them. And, and yet, how come is it we look back and think, well, I, I wouldn't make that mistake any, anymore, but yet tomorrow we make the same mistake that we made back then? What if we changed our perspective? What if we, here's a better way to think of it, what if we changed our approach? And instead of trying to figure it all out on our own, what if the first thing we did was, God, I'm going to pray. 
I'm going to, to put this before you and position myself to hear you speak. What would the outcome be? Are you good today? Everybody good? All right, let me give you a couple more thoughts. You're looking tired, though, man. I don't want you to be tired. Here we go. Second thought is this. Not only does God hear us when we're guilty, but he helps us when we're desperate. He not only hears us when we're guilty, but he helps us when we're desperate. I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about desperation here in just a moment, but I want to give you the verse that brings this truth out. Jonah chapter 2, a couple of verses here, verses 5 and 6. He says, the engulfing waters, they threaten me. The deep surrounded me, seaweed wrapped around my head. Here, here it is. Here's his desperation, verse 6. The roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought life up from the pit. I love that in these verses, Jonah recognizes, wait a minute, I cannot save myself. I'm just going to surrender. I'm just going to surrender. There's a, a great Christian uh, pastor and author by the name of A.W. Tozer. A lot, a lot of his literature is worth, uh, you know, talking through and looking at. But there's one quote that he makes that really stood out to me about this idea of desperation and this idea of finding God. He says these words. He says, the people who have found God are those who have come to the end of themselves. People that, that find God are the ones that recognize that I have to be desperate for something more than just selfish reasoning. Let me give you this thought too. Write this down. Desperation is a requirement for salvation. I know it takes faith. I know there's grace involved. But if you're not desperate for God to save you, then you'll continue to allow pride to creep in and give you this false narrative that you can save yourself. The only way that we ever find salvation is to be desperate. Webster's Dictionary, here it is, I want you to write this definition down, defines desperate as, a, as suffering extreme need. Suffering extreme need. Oh, by a show of hands, both campuses here, Anybody ever been in that moment where you were suffering extreme need? Let me give you a couple quick stories. How many of you know that we have a campus in the greater Washington, D.C. area? So on occasion, I have the chance to, to fly up and, and visit our, our beautiful church family there. And a couple, uh, a couple of years ago, I was making a, a trip out of Hartsfield-Jackson, and uh, I was flying into to Reagan National. And... You know, over the last seven years, I've done that trip, I don't know, lots of times. And, and to be honest, flying doesn't really bother me anymore. In the beginning, I would be a little bit nervous, but, you know, flying doesn't really trouble me. I know it can create some anxiety for others, but kind of get on, get up, get gone, you land, you get off, and, and it is what it is. But on this particular flight, I was flying with a group of middle schoolers that were leaving Atlanta to go to D.C. for spring break. So three-fourths of the, the aircraft was occupied by sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, which was full of entertainment, might I add. About midway through the flight, we hit, in my opinion, what was the worst turbulence I've ever experienced uh, in a flight. And multiple times, repeatedly, consecutively, 
the aircraft dropped in altitude. I mean, hard drops. Boom. Boom. Well, as you can imagine, every, everybody's screaming, especially these middle schoolers. I mean, they've, not only have they lost their mind, but watch this. One kid lost his lunch. One kid throws up, and it creates a succession plan of vomiting. And I, I can't even tell you how many kids threw up on that airplane, but it, it had to be two dozen plus. And, I mean, teachers screaming, you know, flight attendants jumping out. No, I made that part up, just seeing if you're listening, you know. Just. But it was, it was I mean, it, it was scary. And in that moment, I, I think it's the only time that I've really ever prayed this way on a, on a flight. But I said, Lord, if this plane's going down, there's a few things I just want to repent of. Come on now. How many of you are with me? I want to make sure. Our Father who art in heaven, right? I'm laying hands on myself. I'm doing this whole thing. I'm like, whatever it takes, if we're going down, I'm going up. Hallelujah, you know? I, I have never in my life been more desperate for land than in that moment. I know what it's like to be desperate. When Kimberly and I, when we first got married, uh, year one of our marriage, and, and many of you can recall that year one can create some challenges. You're getting to know each other and, and personality, and you know she's learning my temperament, and I'm figuring out that she spends a lot of money, and, um, and, that, and really that never changes. And so, come on, fellas, help me out, fellas. Come on, it's good now, ain't it? And uh, so bless, touch her, Lord, right now. I feel conviction right here, Kimberly. And uh, that first year, there, there, there was a lot. Uh, one of Kimberly's relatives on her father's side was murdered in Trinidad. Uh, we lost another really close friend and really a family member uh, to a tragic car accident. And, and then I got really sick, really sick. And... Uh, I mean, I went through a series of all kinds of tests as to what was going on with my body, but you know, I was just sick. I was, I was always, always sick, and so I'll, I'll spare you the details, but we made a, a trip to Florida, which is where I'm from, to visit my family, and while we're down there in Florida, I'm in the back seat of my sister's SUV, and uh, I double over in pain, and it's the worst pain that I've ever been in in my life, and again, this is after months and months of tests of what's going on with my body. They rush me to Tampa General Hospital. We check in to the emergency room. My, my mom at the time, this was before she retired, she was working as the administrative assistant to the chief of staff surgeon, which isn't amazing how God just works everything out, how he just orchestrates everything. So the doctor walks into the emergency room and he says, JC, we don't know what's going on, but you're not going to leave this hospital until we figure out exactly what's happening. Through some of the, the worst, most painful life-changing test exams and series of events, they discovered that I had a gastrointestinal stroma tumor and that if they didn't operate, I was going to die. They took out 18 inches of my intestines. And I, I remember uh, looking at my, you know, my, my newlywed, my wife, my family, the fear that we all felt of, am I going to make it? My, my skin had turned jaundice. We had to do a, an emergency blood transfusion. I mean, I, I'm telling you, I'm not making this up. I was sitting at death's door. And in that moment, I have never been more desperate for a miracle and more desperate for intervention and more desperate for life than in that moment. That's why when people ask me to pray for their need or their situation, 
Sometimes I think we can get really guilty of like this patty cake prayer to God. But if you've ever been through desperate moments, you know what it's like to touch heaven with prayer and then asking other people to bombard heaven with you. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And I was desperate to live. And thanks be to God. Come on now. That's what he does. I remember when Kimberly was pregnant with London. London's now five years old, and we were uh, living in Maryland at the time. And uh, Kimberly, she, she looks at me, and she says, I'm in labor. Now, in our, in our family, Kimberly is always the calm one. I'm the freaker-outer. That's me. I freak out about everything. And she's like, I'm in labor. And I'm like, ah, okay, here we go. You know, like, and I've got charts and graphs and everything. I'm like, here we go. You know, it's go time. And she's like, and Kimberly's like, breathe. And I'm like, so we rush to the hospital and, uh, you know, we get there and they hook Kimberly up to all of these monitors and, you know, the process of, you know, delivery comes and, and Kimberly makes a turn, turn for the worse. I remember her mom jump on a plane to get up there real fast and, you know, the doctors are, you know, flipping out and thank God for doctors, by the way. So they're, they're, they're not only working on London, but they're working on my wife. And, you know, there's nothing that I can do but, but pray. And I remember just stepping back, and I sat down in a little chair in that delivery room, and I just cried out to God, desperate for God to just intervene. And sure enough, God blessed us with London Grace, who is the joy of our lives, and my wife recovered, and she's healthy, and she's well. And for that, I'm so grateful. And as soon as it was over, I told Kim, I was like, we're not having any more children. <laughs> she was like, oh, we aren't? <laughs> you, you've got your stories. You've got your, you know what it's like to suffer extreme need. But can, can I remind you that that although desperation is definitely a main ingredient for salvation, what you need to know is this, is that God, and I know this is wordy, but I want you to either take a picture or write it down. God doesn't need you to fix you. God doesn't need you to clean you up or clean up the situation or figure it all out. You've heard people say, and maybe you've said this, well, if I come to church, lightning will strike. Listen, if lightning was going to strike because somebody showed up at church, it would have struck the day that I walked in. Come on. That's not the kind of God that we serve. That's guilt. God doesn't need you to fix you. God doesn't need you to save yourself. God just needs you to be desperate. Because when we're desperate, it is a sign of surrender that you say, I'm taking my hands off. I'm lifting you up, Jesus. And I'm trusting that your will shall be done. To get desperate enough. Listen to me. Even in the belly of a fish to say, okay, I'm done running. I'm done playing games. I'm desperate for you to move. And from the depths of the sea, God not only hears us when we're guilty, but he helps us when we're desperate. Are you good today? Is this good? Come on. One more thought and we're done. Here we go. Third, third truth is this. God humbles us <laughs> when we're running. God has this unique way of humbling us when we decide to jump on a boat called 
disobedience. He always does. Because it's through that humility that we're reminded that there, there, there is only one who can bring us salvation. I love what Jonah prayed. It's recorded in the seventh verse. And I want you to see this one more time. He says this. He says, when, when my life was slipping away, another translation says ebbing away. Watch what he says. He says, I remembered you. I remembered you, Lord. I got caught up in my study this week, um, remembering the Lord. It's where those three quick stories came from and 30 others. Just remembering the Lord. I started praying for you. I said, Lord, whoever watches online, Whoever shows up in Germantown, whoever shows up at South Metro, can they, even from the belly of the fish, just remember you? Remember your goodness. Remember your grace. Remember your mercy. And I got caught up this week remembering the goodness of the Lord. You know, every time that we take communion together, Jesus instructed us that every time you eat of the bread and you drink from the cup, you do this in remembrance of me. Now, I don't know who I'm talking to. Maybe you're not in the belly of a fish, quote unquote. Maybe 2020 has been your best year ever. But I think for the majority of us, we kind of feel, just kind of feel the storm. We, we feel the challenge, we feel the weight. And, and maybe you're like me. You've tried to pick up the reins and take control and, and be your own God. Let me just encourage you. Just stop. Allow the Lord to humble you by his sovereignty, his omnipotence, knowing that he's omnipresent. And just remember how faithful and how good God really is. I, I don't know if I've ever done this before, but... I want to take 20 seconds, and I'd love if you're watching online at Germantown in this room, if you just close your eyes, 20 seconds, and just remember how faithful God has been, how good and gracious he's been. We live in such a fast-paced life, fast-paced world. Can you just pause and reflect and remember how good he is? Come on, 10 more seconds here. Isn't he good? So the next time that the enemy whispers in your ear that God doesn't love you, that God doesn't hear you, that God doesn't care about you, you just pause and you remember the goodness of the Lord. And then verse number nine says this. He says, so with shouts of grateful praise, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. And I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Talk about humility. He's humbled in his running and he recognizes here, I'm done. Another minute and a half, I'll walk off this platform. Here's what Jonah realizes. In the belly of a fish, listen to me, there is nothing I can do to save myself. Nothing. 
So for all of the individuals out there that think that works is what saves you, wrong. Only grace, by faith. Because in the belly of this fish, there were no good works that Jonah could do to be saved. There's no amount of money. Jonah couldn't pay his tithe. Jonah can't volunteer. Jonah didn't have his version Bible app. You know, you know what he had in the belly of the fish? You know what he had in his Sarah? You know what he had in Sheol? It's what you have. He says, I have the power of prayer and the power of repentance. And the, listen to me. And the best way out of whatever you're in is to pray your way out, to repent your way out, to cry your way out, because salvation comes from the Lord. Let me give you this closing question. We'll be done. What's it going to take for you to stop running from God and to start running to Him? For Jonah, it took a storm and Shamu, but God finally got his attention. What's it going to take for you to stop running away from God in disobedience and start running to God in obedience? Father, I feel your spirit here. I pray everybody in Germantown and online feels your presence as well. God, I pray that you would move in the hearts of your people. And Lord, that we would all recognize that you hear us when we're guilty. Thank you, Jesus, for that. That you help us when we're desperate and you humble us when we run. Let's stop running from you and let's start running to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen and amen.